Uh, let's open up to the book of Genesis, where we continue our study this morning. Uh, and we come uh, this morning, at the end of chapter 11, beginning of chapter 12, to a bit of a turning point in the story. Uh, the, this great story the Bible tells, the greatest story that's ever been told. It's the true story of the fight for the heart and the fate of humanity. And one of the things that makes ours such a fascinating story is that we, humanity, are the villains. It's the story of God working to save us from ourselves. And we've seen that time and time again as we've gone through Genesis so far. Adam's sin spreads to Cain and his line and Lamech, uh, through Seth's line to the Nephilim, bringing about God's righteous judgment um, of sin in the form of the flood, but also his merciful, gracious provision of rescue through the family of Noah. And then we discovered last week, though, the bad news that the flood did not cleanse the world of sin. Sin was riding in the ark in the hearts of Noah and his family. Noah became a drunkard and Ham became a gossip, Canaan a rebel and Nimrod a tyrant. And every time we think we found a good candidate for Eve's long-awaited serpent-crushing offspring, the Proto-Uangelion, Genesis 3.15's promised one who is prophesied to be the cure for our sin problem, that character inevitably slips up and falls way short. And this morning, we're going to be introduced to yet another character who fits that description. But this guy is special. He's a little different. If Adam brought a curse for all people, we hear in Romans 5, and Noah brought about a generic blessing of common grace for all people, we studied in Genesis 9, then Abram today is going to inaugurate God's new project of special grace that will be offered to all people. Everyone will either be blessed or cursed through Abram, depending on whether you receive or reject him, or to be more precise, whether we receive or reject his offspring. In chapter 12, verse 7, we'll get to that later. But God's grace now flows through a particular line of people. God's people, his chosen nation, God will now bless so as to be a blessing to all nations, we're going to hear. Abraham, as he will be renamed in Genesis chapter 17, is arguably the second most important person who has ever lived. The three big monotheistic faiths, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, all trace uh, our collective roots back to Abraham, make up one half of the world's total population. I mean, just consider his importance for the story of Genesis here. So far, we have covered 2,000 plus years of prehistory in Genesis chapters 1 through 11, 11 chapters. God will spend the next 14 chapters of Genesis spanning just 100 years devoted solely to the story of Abram. And the call of Abram in chapter 12 for today marks perhaps the most decisive defining moment in Abram's life and here's how I've outlined the passage for us my wording is a bit strained here but I'm going to try and alliterate it for you most significantly Abram is going to receive three callings followed by three covenant 
promises, promises from God to which he will respond with three successful obediences of faith or what we might call causes for celebration. But as the story unfolds, Abram finds himself faced with three continued challenges which ultimately bring about three collapses, three failures on Abram's part, all of which leaves us, you and me, today with three concerns which, when understood rightly in their holistic biblical context, become glorious confidences in our now-realized hope of a better covenant and a better covenant keeper, Jesus. All right, so you're all thoroughly confused now, so let's just dive into the text. We'll try and clarify my clunky, complicated configuring of the text as we go along. I got stuck on the seas there, as you could see. So we're in Genesis chapter 11. We're going to start in verse 10. We'll go all the way up through chapter 12, verse 20. Hear the word of the Lord. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was a hundred years old, he fathered Arpachshad two years after the flood. And Shem lived and he fathered Arpachshad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arpachshad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Arpachshad lived after he had fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years had other sons and daughters. And when Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he had fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Ryu. When Peleg lived after he fathered Ryu 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Ryu had lived 32 years, he fathered Sarug. And Ryu lived after he fathered Sarug 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Sarug had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. Sarug lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years, had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now, these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those 
who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with them. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were still in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar for the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Now there's a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is my wife. This is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say instead that you're my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep and oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And so Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this that you've done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you bless the study, interpretation, explanation, the application of your word now as we seek to be not just hearers but doers. We want to understand what it is that you have to tell us this morning through the example of Abram. God, as we in faith this morning seek to submit ourselves to your authority, to your leading, to your guiding, like Abram does here, Would you bless us for it? Would you sanctify us? Would you uh, edify us? Would you draw us into deeper relationship with you? And Father, if there's anyone uh, watching, listening along this morning, who like Scott prayed already, does not know you as Savior yet, God, I pray that you might even save someone through the preaching of your word this morning. God, we pray all of this in your name and for your glory. Amen. Amen. Now, um, I left off last week in verses uh, 
1 through 9 of chapter 11, and we pick up here in verses 10 through 26. I left that in for you. I know that's a lot of genealogy, but I left it in as a historical bridge from the Tower of Babel story that we left off with. Um, We're not going to examine the genealogy here in depth, uh, not because genealogies aren't important. They are. That was our very first sermon uh, in the new year, you remember, back in January in our Tough Text series. Genealogies, genealogies were in the ancient world and still are today very important, but for the sake of time, I just want you to notice one important trend here in the family tree. And if uh, you see this slide, uh, this graphic up on your screen, that ought to highlight the trend for you. Do you notice anything about that chart that you're looking at, especially in those last 10 generations from Shem up to Abram? here in chapter 11's genealogy. Notice the shrinking lifespans of the post-flood patriarchs. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. And this genealogical record here is case in point. The average life expectancy before the flood was 858 years. After the flood, 300 years. And of course today, worldwide, it's 72 six years. The farther we get from the fall, the more this virus that we call sin has spread and sin brings with it death. But into that bleak situation, God steps in here and acts by calling this descendant of Shem named Abram here in chapter 12 verse 1. And what does God call Abram to do specifically? In a word, in verse 1, God calls him to go. He says, go from, leave is the Hebrew. Leave what? Three things. Three things that Abram is called to leave. And you need to follow this because these are going to be your three recurring themes for the entire passage today. Abram is called to leave, number one, his land. Number two, his family. And number three, his blessing his country, his kindred, and his father's house, his home, all that he's been blessed with, essentially everything that he's ever known and loved in life. He's called to leave. Okay, so where is he headed? He's not sure. God tells him at the end of verse 1, to the land that I will show you. God says, I'll let you know when you get there. This is the ultimate step of faith into the bold unknown And to understand just how radical this step of faith would have been for Abram, we need to understand a little bit more about his background. We read in chapter 11, verse 31, that Abram was originally from Ur of the Chaldeans. Ur was the capital city of Sumeria in southern Mesopotamia, modern-day Iraq. It was basically the height of human civilization at that time in the 21st century B.C., Uh, It it was right at the confluence of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, the sweet spot of the Fertile Crescent. Some speculate it was built near or even on the Tower of Babel from chapter 11 that we heard about. Uh, Sumerian, we know, is the first language that shows up in our earliest archaeological records today. And so Ur was the epicenter of human innovation, civilization. God says, I want you to leave that land and all of its comforts that you've grown accustomed to. Our first idol from last week's sermon. But God called Abram to leave more than just his land behind. His family and his blessing, 
everything he had known. 700 years later, Joshua will lead the Israelites back to the promised land, and he renews the covenant with God and includes this interesting detail for us about Abram. It says, Joshua said to all the people, this is Joshua chapter 24, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. That is the context for every Christian family's favorite doorway plaque hanger verse. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua 24, 15. In context, Joshua there is recognizing that the Israelites actually had other options, like competing rival gods they used to worship. And up to this point, Abraham had been a polytheistic pagan. Before Yahweh calls him, in chapter 12, Abram served other gods, probably the moon god in particular. We know uh, the center of worship for the moon god in ancient Sumeria was located in the city of Ur. And this moon god was aptly named Sin. When archaeologist, uh, archaeologist Leonard Woolley unearthed the remains of the city of Ur in 1927, he discovered the temple ziggurat that was dedicated to sin and remnants of human sacrifices that had been offered to appease him. That's what Abraham was leaving behind. But now note what God promises Abram if he answers this call. He promises Abram land, family, and blessing. Number one, land. Verse one, God says, go to the land that I will show you. And verse five identifies it as the land of Canaan. Chapter 10, verse 19 has already laid out its boundaries for us. Centuries later, just before Joshua reclaimed the land, he sent out spies who give us even more detail about it. They say it's a good land. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. We call it the promised land because God includes it here as Abram's inheritance in verse 7. He says, to your offspring I will give this land. Which brings us to point number 2, family. God promises Abram in verse 2, I will make of you a great nation, a people, a family. That promise is once again supported by God's pledge of offspring in verse 7. What a wonderful promise for this 75-year-old man and his 65-year-old wife, Sarai, who we found out in chapter 11, verse 30, was barren. She had no children. Children were everything in the ancient world. No children meant no domestic workforce. It meant no retirement plan. These are the days before nursing homes and social safety nets. Not to mention the social stigma of being barren in the ancient world. They considered you cursed by God if you were barren. And so this is a beautiful promise, a family. And lastly, God promises Abram blessing. Notice this fourfold progression of blessing through verses 2 and 3. God says, I will bless you personally, Abram, and make your name great, but I'll go beyond that, and then I'll make you a blessing to others. He says in verse 3, in fact, I'll even myself directly bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And fourthly, ultimately, in you, all 
the families of the earth shall be blessed. That sounds pretty amazing to me. Right? It's an amazing promise. But the big question for Abram is, can I trust it? Can I trust this God, this new God, Yahweh, to follow through on his promise? And I think we've got to take seriously how big that question must have loomed for Abram to stake his life on it. And yet, I think we, we have to assume that the fact that Yahweh is actually speaking to him must have given Abram confidence in this covenant-making God. After 75 years of sacrificing human beings to his conspicuously silent moon god, Sin, Abram now is longing for something more, for something real. And this God speaks. He speaks. So without so much as a question, we hear in verse 4 that Abram went as the Lord had told him. And this begins our next section, Abram's successes, his causes for celebration. We can celebrate three things about Father Abraham. Number one, he trusted God. He, he left his old life behind and he actually went to the land to which God had called him. We hear in verse five, they set out to go to the land of Canaan. And who is they? We hear in verse five, this is the family. Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered and all the people they had acquired in Haran. Now, it's one thing for Abram to trust God for himself. It's another thing for him to risk his entire family's life on it. Trekking through unknown territories, the wilderness, all sorts of perils. In fact, commentators think that the people that they had acquired in Haran, that we hear about in verse 5, weren't slaves, as we might assume from that phrasing, but rather they were proselytes. They were converts to Abram's new monotheistic faith. He had been evangelizing the whole way, the whole almost 1,000-mile trek to Canaan from Ur. He had been evangelizing, witnessing, and, and winning other Yahweh followers who joined his new spiritual family. And number three, to round out Abram's triumphs, what does he do when he arrives in the land? We hear, verse seven, then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring I'll give this land. So Abram built there an altar for the Lord. This is massively significant. This is the first time God has visibly appeared to anyone since Adam and Eve back in the garden thousands and thousands of years before. And so Abram commemorates this sacred moment by building an altar and then a second altar in verse 8 so that he can offer sacrifices. This is the default mode of worship in the ancient world. This is Abram's first occasion of pure, true God worship. Now, before we get to the bad news, I want to take just another moment to appreciate just how monumental this step of faith was for Abram. There is a reason 
that he is mentioned more than almost any other character in the Bible. There's a reason he's the only person in the Bible to be titled, called a friend of God. Three times in Scripture. James 2, 23, and 2 Chronicles 20, Isaiah 41, 8. There's a reason Abram was uniquely celebrated by the people of Israel in the book of Nehemiah at their covenant renewal ceremony. They shout, God chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and found his heart faithful. There's just one problem. For anyone wondering if maybe, just maybe, Abram would be Eve's promised offspring who would finally break the curse of sin. As laudable as Abram's faith is, he's seen as a pillar of faith throughout the rest of the Bible. Hebrews 11, it's the so-called Hall of Faith chapter, devotes more verses to Abram than any other figure in the Bible. He is the Michael Jordan of faith, for those of you watching the Last Dance documentary. But we discover in the second half of chapter 12, that Abraham is actually more like LeBron James because we find that when things get tough, Abraham crumbles under the pressure. First Peter 1 says that God lets us face trials of various kinds so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory. But in Abram's case... When the heat gets cranked up in the fire, the impurities in his faith get exposed. Specifically here, we see him facing three challenges that crank up the heat. Number one is the challenge to Abram's land. Namely, he never actually gets to live in it. Hebrews 11.9 notes of Abram, that he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob. Abram will eventually build four different altars for God, but never a single home for himself. He lives in tents all his life. God had promised him the land as his inheritance, but remember in verse 7, he says, to your offspring I will give this land. And so Abram left the comforts of Ur, to become a wandering, homeless nomad. And he ends his meandering tour of the land somewhat forebodingly in verse 9, still going toward the Negeb, the desert, the wilderness. This is the same wilderness where the Israelites' faith would be tested and would fail 700 years later on their way back to the promised land after their exodus from Egypt. The second challenge is to his family. Over time, God's promise of an offspring, we hear in chapter 15, descendants as numerous as the stars. That's got to start over time to just wear and sting for Abram as the years go by of infertility. It's a painful reminder that he still doesn't have any offspring. He's already 75 years old when he leaves home, and Isaac won't be born for another 25 years. And meanwhile, God just keeps reminding him time and time again. Chapter 12, chapter 15, chapter 17, all the kids he's going to have. And Abram eventually laughs at God in frustration in chapter 17. 
throws up his hands and said, God, would you either make it happen already and finally give me this child or quit rubbing it in, please? And finally, number three is the challenge to Abram's blessing. We hear in verse 10, now there was a famine in the land. The famine was severe. And so here's the picture. Here's poor Abram wandering through the desert, not exactly flowing with milk and honey. Still no kids. It's unclear how many years this goes on, but likely quite a few when a severe famine hits on top of all of it. And Abraham's got to be thinking to himself, God, remember all those great promises you made to me back when I was in Ur, the comforts of Ur? All those great promises that sounded so wonderful? So what does Abram do? Three collapses in his faith. Verses 10 through 20. The first failure with regard to the land is he leaves it. Here in verse 10, there's a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. Now, did God tell Abram to leave the land he had promised him to go to Egypt? This is the first time in the story that Abram acts of his own accord. He doesn't follow God's lead. And we're going to find out how it goes for him. Pastor Kent Hughes comments here, Abram did the natural thing. And herein the problem lies. There is no mention that Abram sought God's will in the matter. The famine had created the fear of starvation and Abram then instinctively moved to allay his fear without reference to God's will. Given what will then befall him, it is apparent that if he had solicited God's will, the story would have been quite different. Abram's going to Egypt was not so much an intentional sin, Hughes says, as it was a reflexive turn to his own devices. He didn't deny God, he simply forgot him. And I'm trying to save our personal application of this message for the end, but it's so hard. I hope that, that, that you are resonating with what is going on internally with Abram here. Doing the natural thing. Reflexive turn to my own devices. Trusting in my own instincts. Trusting in myself instead of going to God and following his lead. Forgetting God. This famine-induced sojourn to Egypt foreshadows migration of Jacob's family there at the end of the book of Genesis. And most of us are familiar with how that trip turned out for the Israelites. 400 years of slavery. The fact is, Abram had failed the test of faith actually long before this trip to Egypt in verse 10. If you look back with me again in chapter 11, verse 31, we hear Terah took Abram his son and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there instead. Ironically enough, the place name Haran means delay. We're not told exactly how long Abram delayed in Haran, but it was at least long enough to witness and win those converts that we hold back, uh, heard about back in verse 5. It was long enough for Abram's father, Terah, to decide in verse 32 that he'd just settle down and stay and die there. 
Remember, the Bible isn't always concerned with chronology and storytelling, and so even though God's call of Abram at the beginning of chapter 12 reads like a new event, some of your Bibles will have for you the footnote by, beside the verb there in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, and, and the footnote will say, inform you of the alternate reading, the Lord had said to Abram. It was past perfect tense because as Stephen makes clear in Acts chapter 7 in the New Testament, he says, the God of glory appeared to our father Abram when he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land. And so here's, here's your map. I'll show you a graphic, another graphic here of uh, Abram's uh, projected route from Ur to Canaan by way of Haran. Now, admittedly, Abram's detour wasn't as bad as Jonah's, right? The prophet Jonah. When God called Jonah to go to Nineveh, directly to the east, Jonah instead boards a ship for Tarshish, directly to the west, exact opposite direction. In Abram's case, you know, well, Haran is kind of on the way to Canaan. I mean, it's like on the way in the same way that me swinging by Chick-fil-A in the valley is on the way from my home at Ledoux in 141 en route to church at 40 and Mason, right? I mean, I got to get on the highway anyway. It's just a couple exits out of the way. So it really be, you know, nice to swing by. So that kind of puts in perspective for you Abram's faithful obedience here to leave his home in, in Ur to go to Canaan. He made it there eventually, but he took the scenic route, right? I mean, who wants to travel across the Syrian desert after all? Friends, I, I hope you're reading yourself into the story and the character of Abram here, justifying your own partial obedience to God, defending the detours that you take from God's calling on your life. Number two is the collapse of Abram's family. What happens when they get to Egypt? We hear in verses 11 through 16, when he was about to enter Egypt, Abram said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. Now remember, Sarai is 65 years old at this point, but hey, when you got it, you got it. Am I right? 65 is the new 35, at least when you live to be 175. And so... We hear Abram's worried. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is my wife, then they'll kill me. And they'll let you live. Say you're my sister instead, that it may go well with me because of you. My life may be spared for your sake. But when Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians did see that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. He had sheep, oxen, donkeys, servants, goats, camels. Abram's fear prevails over his faith. And so he sells his wife out to save his own skin. Abram asks Sarai to literally become, pardon the expression, a lying whore. She gets taken as a concubine in Pharaoh's harem so that Abram can not only be spared but actually prophet. Abram gets rich off of this whole deceitful scheme. It's absolutely reprehensible. 
And worst of all, Abram doesn't even learn from his mistake. He does the exact same thing again in chapter 20, which we'll get to in a couple weeks from now, when they sojourn in Gerar. In fact, Abram confesses in chapter 20 that he hatched this plan way back when they first left Ur in the first place, and they've been pulling this stunt at every place to which they've come, he says. Perhaps that is how they really acquired all the people and possessions that we heard about in verse 5. Abram's been prostituting his wife out. The third is the collapse of Abram's blessing. This man, who was supposed to be a blessing to all families of the earth, has now become a plague to the Egyptians. Verse 17, but the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Once again, foreshadowing the Egyptian plague 650 years later with Moses. But even Abram's own alleged blessings, his dowry gifts from Pharaoh, weren't so blessed after all. Kent Hughes notes, the ill-gotten gain caused huge trouble in the following years for Abram, first in the strife with Lot's herdsmen, that'll be chapter 13 for next week for us, and then through a young Egyptian woman named Hagar, who was likely one of the maidservants given to Abram by Pharaoh, and that'll be chapter 16 a few weeks from now for us. Let's just try now and bring all of this together, bring it down to our level. What's the application for us, for you and me today? What is our takeaway from all of this? That we should be an Abram, be, be people of bold faith, willing to leave everything behind for God? I can't help but hear the words of Matt Chandler's now famous sermon echoing through my mind. You're not David. If you haven't listened to that sermon, I urge you to Google for Matt Chandler's You're Not David. You can find a little seven-minute clip on YouTube entitled The Bible is Not About You. But here's the, the point. Here's the summary. You're not Abram. Listen, I don't care how strong, bold, perseverant you think your faith is, I guarantee you and I have not left behind half of what Abraham gave up to follow God, to step out into the bold unknown in faith. It's no contest. We are not Abram. Even with his collapses, you better be careful judging Abram in verses 10 through 20 here for his failures. Go ahead and read James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, and you try and tell me that you passed the test of faith with flying colors. Where James says, count it all joy, pure joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Is that your faith? Is your faith perfect, complete, lacking in nothing? Do you count it pure joy when your faith is tested? Has it just been a nonstop coronavirus party at your house for the last two months of quarantine. Like, praise God for this test of faith. Friends, you and I are no better than Abram. That's exactly why we need a better 
Abram. Did you hear me? We're no better than Abram. That's why we need a better Abram, a better covenant that doesn't factor in your faithlessness to it because you and I will break it every chance we get. You and I need a better, better covenant keeper than us. And listen to how Jesus is described in his promise to us in John chapter 8 this morning. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, and yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he'll never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. I am, by the way, it's the name Yahweh revealed for himself to, to Moses in the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. So make no mistake, Jesus claimed here to be God. Jesus claimed to be the long-awaited offspring of the woman who bears and breaks the curse of sin once and for all. He is Abram's promised offspring. The Apostle Paul explains in Galatians chapter 3, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, singular, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Friends, Jesus is the better Abram who left his glorious throne home in heaven. Everything he knew, all the comforts that he loved, knew and sacrificed it all in perfect obedience to God the Father. He is the one of whom Galatians 3.8 says, the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. Jesus is Abram's offspring 42 generations later down the family line who finally makes good on God's promise to bless all nations through this man, through Abram, through Jesus. You want land? How about heaven for your home? You want family? How about God for your father, Jesus for a brother, his church, his people, a whole new family of brothers and sisters who have been adopted into this beautiful new spiritual family by faith. You want blessing? How about salvation and eternal life? God so loved the world that he gave his only son that what? Whosoever believes. Abraham believed God and his faith was credited to him as righteousness. We'll get to that more in two weeks from now with the covenant. But God's plan here has always been justification by faith alone in God's grace alone. Whoever believes what shall not perish but have everlasting life. But friends, like Abram, God is calling you this morning, he is calling you to go, to get out, to leave your old life behind in order to find new life in him, eternal life 
in Christ. Jesus says, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it and save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? And so I ask you this morning, friends, have you taken that all-important step of faith, been willing to risk it all, leave it all behind, to follow Jesus, to trust Jesus, to be your righteousness and have your faith in him credited to you as righteousness. All other ground is sinking sand. Will you trust him this morning?